The Impact at UTS podcast series is made by Impact Studios at the University of Technology, Sydney, an audio production house funded by the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research. We are living in a rapidly changing world, and whether we like it or not, we're facing increasingly global problems. We are the first generation to feel the impact of climate change and the last generation that can do something about it. From deepening droughts in Australia to thawing permafrost in the Arctic. No single country can do it on its own. We've had now for decades rising inequality and incomes stagnating or falling. For the second time this week, Black Lives Matter protesters gathered outside the Portland Police Department calling for change. COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. It has killed nearly one million people around the world. If we don't take action, the collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. The eyes of all future generations are upon you. And if you choose to fail us, I say we will never forgive you. Forgive you. Environmental crises, income disparity, public health issues, organized crime, the list goes on. These wicked problems, as they've come to be known, what if I told you they could be solved? And perhaps the problem with the wicked problems was the way in which we approached them in the first place. Stick with me. These problems are known as wicked problems. That means they're often open, there are no boundaries, they're hard to contain or define to a geography or sector, they're complex. That means there are many elements that interact, many relationships, and their interactions are not linear, and they're networked. They're across organizations and even across borders. What if our greatest minds and excellent researchers have not been able to solve these problems because, well, you just can't tackle a problem with just one research discipline alone? These aren't individual problems to begin with. Instead, they're interrelated and intrinsically linked in a system of problems. And so trying to solve any one part of the problem in isolation, no matter how well-equipped and well-intentioned you are, is going to be near impossible. The solution, I think, lies in something I've dedicated the next stage of my career to, something called transdisciplinary innovation. It's a mouthful, I know. I'm Associate Professor Martin Blemel and the Associate Dean of Research for the Faculty of, you guessed it, Transdisciplinary Innovation at UTS. In this episode of Impact at UTS, we're going to break you out of your research silo and look at ways to collaborate across disciplines as well as external partners. We'll examine the pleasures and pitfalls of co-designing research, and we're going to unpack one of the biggest buzzwords out there right now, transdisciplinarity. In doing so, we will debunk some myths about transdisciplinary collaboration too. Helping me do this will be Professor Cameron Tonkinwise. He's the head of the Design Innovation Research Center at UTS. The first thing is just to recognize that you're working in spaces of difference. You're not working in spaces of commonality. And Professor Stuart White, the director of the Institute for Sustainable Futures at UTS. I mean, their problems are not chemistry problems or mathematics problems or engineering or sociology problems. They're just problems. And so we need a team of people with different disciplinary backgrounds. But first, what is transdisciplinarity, or TD as we like to call it? Like I said, the world is facing some pretty big problems, and no one field has the solution. Instead, we need to work together to find solutions to our problems. There are many definitions of transdisciplinary research and how to do it. We've boiled it down to three factors. TD research involves mixing academic knowledges from across multiple disciplines. It involves mixing multiple applied knowledges through the collaboration with stakeholders outside the university. 
and it involves co-designing the research with those stakeholders using a human-centered approach. One way to look at this is, I mean, I suffer from allergies. If I have a runny nose, the simple solution is to grab tissues or menthols to, to address the runniness, but that just treats the symptoms of the cause. If you actually want to start unpacking that as a much more complex problem, you want to look at where is that coming from? Is it from cold? Is it from allergies? Does it then get into genetics? Does it get into how we feed ourselves? How we train our immune system right from day one? How we expose ourselves to dirt, whether we're overcleaning, the whole hygiene theory thing. How society drives us to being so hygienic and, and clean. Where does our food come from internationally? It, it starts getting pretty messy pretty quickly when all I have is a runny nose. So by taking a holistic approach, you're not just treating the symptoms. You're actually starting to keep asking why, 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 until you understand that this is actually a much bigger problem. It's not just me having a runny nose. It's perhaps a whole of society problem to which there might be a much more important and much more impactful solution that can help many, many people rather than just me. TD has been around since universities began, before we carved up into faculties, schools, or degrees. And it's only recently that we've started to organize knowledge using these boundaries that we're all too familiar with. There's a decades-old quip about universities being nothing more than individual faculties held together by a common grievance over parking. As humans, we'd like to categorize, organize, and sort things. Who doesn't like to assemble their own bookshelf and make sense of the clutter? We all like to put things into boxes. But what happens if those artificial boundaries or boxes are now getting in the way? Academics started redefining those boxes in the 1970s when TD emerged as a distinct concept or way of thinking in the literature. What TD means for individual practitioners and academics depends on where they are coming from. Someone who I don't think would mind me calling them a practitioner of transdisciplinarity is Professor Stuart White, the director of the Institute for Sustainable Futures at UTS. Stuart has spent the last 20-some years working with academics across disciplines. He's an expert in how you wrangle different minds and perspectives to create groundbreaking and impactful research. Here he is speaking with Impact Studios producer and journalist Cassandra Steeth. We have a mission to create change towards sustainable futures. So we're, we're a research institute as part of the University of Technology, Sydney. We've been going for over 22 years, and every day our research staff work on solutions to contemporary sustainability problems. The researchers at ISF come from a huge range of different disciplinary backgrounds, and that's because the problems that we deal with on a day-to-day basis that our clients and funders present us with don't have a disciplinary background themselves. I mean, their problems are not chemistry problems or mathematics problems or engineering or sociology problems. They're just problems, and so we need a team of people with different disciplinary backgrounds, in fact, with interdisciplinary backgrounds to apply that thinking to the issues that we're working on. In fact, many of our staff don't think of themselves in terms of their disciplinary background, which is unusual in a university context. The people that make up the Institute for Sustainable Futures are diverse. There isn't a complete list, but they've got architects, lawyers, geographers, engineers, economists, scientists, all working at ISF. They have varied backgrounds and ways of thinking. So getting all those minds in the room to work on a research project can be challenging at the best of times. Having a supportive culture and an openness to share knowledge and ideas is key. This is what Stuart sees as some of the benefits and barriers to TD collaboration. Well, the benefits of these collaborations is that you can make a difference in the world. I mean, that's what our mission is to create change towards sustainable futures, but it's also what motivates our staff. 
So that's really important that we make sure that our work is focused on engaging with clients to make a difference. In terms of it being transdisciplinary, it's absolutely essential that we focus on the problem in a systems way. And systems thinking, the idea that everything is connected to everything else and you need to understand and in some cases actually be explicit and draw the boundaries of your system and recognise where it's connected to other problems is an essential part of our analytical toolbox. Stuart, what would you say is best practice in co-designing research from a transdisciplinary approach with external partners? It should be viewed from a systems point of view. That's the first and most important thing. The second is to do the research and design the research in a collaborative way to make sure that we are gaining knowledge from, firstly, the participants in the problem, which are often uh, the clients and stakeholders, community and so on. So to recognise that there are many different forms of knowledge. It doesn't just come from journal articles, which is often the focus of academic research, but it actually comes from stakeholders engaged in the activities that we're investigating. So that's the first thing is to work very closely with clients and, and the stakeholders to do it in a collaborative way. And then to make sure that that research is used in some way, that it's promoted, that it's communicated, that it's transparent, and that we're getting that the fruits of that research, the outcomes of that research, out to the people who need to see it. So that's a piece about the production of knowledge and the communication of knowledge, and that's extremely important to us because, A, it helps create change, and, B, it's a responsibility of researchers to make sure that the outcomes and the fruits of their research are shared widely and do create that change. With more than 20 years' experience in sustainability research, have you come across differences in perception between academics and non-academics regarding what constitutes effective collaboration? Yes, that's right. There, this is a significant issue and part of the thread of our research over the years, in fact over 20 years, has been the application of the principles of deliberative democracy. So engagement of citizens to determine their preferences and to understand those preferences in a way that can help influence policy. So we battle with the notion that it's the experts who should decide. And part of the problem is that often experts are sceptical of citizen preferences because they think they're uninformed. Well, a lot of our research in deliberate democracy shows that there's a way around this, which is to make sure that citizens can deliberate sufficiently to be informed, to make judgments informed by the knowledge that researchers and others can bring. And so we've participated and designed many deliberative democratic processes, very strongly supportive of these innovative approaches, which often use random selection. They use discussion, debate, deliberation, the ability to question experts and the ability to spend sufficient time to deliberate and to come up with conclusions and findings, either through citizens' juries, citizens' assemblies or other processes similar to that. What have you found to be some of the benefits of having a breadth of perspectives on a research project? It's hugely beneficial to apply different perspective and that can apply both to the different disciplines that you bring to the project because if you are only studying a problem, say, for example, from an engineering point of view, without considering the policy or the implications for the human perspective, the social perspective, then you generally miss the picture. If you think about a problem from an economics perspective without considering the political dimension, then you'll often miss out on 
the solution or worse, it will backfire. So to bring those disciplinary perspectives is absolutely crucial to solve the problem, but to then also bring other perspectives, both the systems thinking, a solution orientation. A lot of our work is much more about how do you find a solution to this problem rather than how do we get more accurate a description of the problem itself. That's really important. Don't get me wrong. It's really important that there are scientists, for example, who are trying to understand the impact of climate change, the nature of climate change and the trajectories of climate change. That's really important research, but it's not what we do. We're much more about saying we'll take that information and now we'll work out what we can do within the limits of our powers to try and solve that and change it. Can you speak of a specific time, Stuart, where having a diverse perspective really helped a research project or perhaps produce a different outcome? Yeah, well, I guess uh, one consideration would be some work that I was involved with starting 20 years ago, which was around the implementation of a deposit and refund system for used containers. So container deposit legislation is an incredibly contested area, large beverage Companies, packaging industry and retailers strongly opposed. Some local government and environment organisations and social welfare organisations strongly supporting. And I was asked by the Minister for Environment in New South Wales to undertake a review of container deposit legislation in New South Wales. And it was incredibly controversial, but we brought a variety of different perspectives to the problem because we recognise that a lot of the studies that have been done before had either been done from an economic perspective without taking into account the environmental implications of the policy, let alone taking into account the social implications of such policy in terms of employment, in terms of the impact on low-income groups, uh, people who are often collecting containers, uh, often low-income groups. So there's a whole range of different factors that come into considering what's an appropriate policy for increasing the collection rate for used containers. So you would think it was a fairly simple problem, but the more that you look at it, the more you realise that not only is this contested, but it requires all of those perspectives in order to come up with decent public policy, particularly in light of the fact that there are multi-billion dollar industry sectors who are lined up on one side of the fence and other organisations lined up on the other side of the fence. So that was really useful for us to undertake that. Indeed, we used deliberative democracy as part of that to determine what randomly selected citizens also thought about this issue. What would your advice be for an early or a mid-career researcher who's thinking about collaborating with another discipline? I think the future of research and the future of the higher education sector is such that that's not just a recommendation. It's not just a good thing to do. I think it will be increasingly an essential thing to do. I think the days of a traditional lockstep progression of an academic through a standard career were already starting to disappear and change. I think in the post-COVID era, I think that's going to accelerate. The ISF has had a transdisciplinary approach to research for over 20 years now, as, as you've said, and you've mentioned this fact that we're seeing a cultural shift toward more transdisciplinary research. Why do you think we're seeing this shift? I mean, there's two factors at work. I think one is that as universities and researchers are uh, trying to find 
funding outside the traditional funding sources, they will engage with contract research, engage with clients in government, in community, in the corporate world, and therefore they'll move towards the need to recognise transdisciplinary research and then transdisciplinary research teams will need to be developed because those problems present themselves in that way. So that's the first thing. There's a sort of, a, if you like, an economic imperative. But the second thing, I think there's just general awareness and pressure that these issues need to be solved. We can't stand by and continue to work in a model which is rarefied and separated from those pressing issues of the world and not be influenced by them and not take part in them. I think there is a general trend. We see that in certainly younger people coming through who want to have a purpose. They're much more purpose-driven rather than thinking, I'll have a standard academic career, PhD, postdoc, publications, lecturer, and so on. There's much more of a hunger for, I want to be uh, making a change in the world and that means I have to operate in a different way. Increasingly, researchers are being asked to develop skills in complex collaboration. Researchers are not just researchers anymore. They're also project managers. What do you think researchers need to be aware of when establishing external partnerships? The first thing that researchers need to think about in working with external partners is basically good old-fashioned customer service in the sense that understanding what it is that the client or the partner is concerned about and what drives them and what keeps them up at night is absolutely key. They're the ones who need to be paid attention to in terms of their needs. Too often we see academics and university researchers uh, coming to a problem saying, I've, I've got a hammer, the problem looks very much like a nail. And that's been a, a really limiting factor in the way that university research engages with industry partners. And by industry, I mean the whole range, government, community, organisations and corporations. So that's the first thing is to say, what is it that the client wants? To be talking with them about that often. And this is something that even after 20 years we can improve at is to be keeping in close communication. And often that's challenging. Often, I mean, clients can be quite demanding. Often there's scope creep in terms of what what we're asked to do. And there's sometimes some negotiations are required in order to come to a, a landing on some of those things. But it's really important to keep communicating and to ensure that different voices are heard as well, that recommending to clients that they engage with other stakeholders to say, okay, what do your stakeholders think of this? How do we ensure that we're representing all of those different voices? So that's probably the most important message. What motivates you as an academic, as a professor and director of the Institute for Sustainable Futures to continue working in this space? I mean, the biggest motivation is the fact that I can see our work making a difference both over the years, but even in an accelerating way, I see impact is growing over time. It's reaching a more receptive audience. And because it's incredibly enjoyable to be doing that as well with a team of people, I mean, the Institute staff are amazing in their commitment and they're great to work with. And that makes a huge difference. Emma Goldman said, if I can't dance, it's not my revolution. 
And I feel the same about working with good people brings its own reward, but also we're making a significant difference. And just to keep doing that is worthwhile in itself. Transdisciplinarity is transformative, uncomfortable at times, possibly even embarrassing as we humbly recognize we're not the expert in the room. But it's always rewarding, and it's always worth the effort to take the time to understand each other's approaches and value systems, especially across academic disciplines or stakeholder groups. And as my colleague Associate Professor Mika van der Bielbrauer says, quote, we need to step towards each other and be courageous enough to leave the safety net of our own disciplines, end quote. Despite the challenges... Working in a diverse group of curious and open-minded people facing complex problems is, well, a steep learning curve, but a perfect place for growth, learning, and knowledge creation. Now, how can we move transdisciplinary innovation beyond being a buzzword? One UTS professor doing just that is Cameron Tonkinwise. Cameron is the head of the Design Innovation Research Center at UTS, where they explore the role design can play in moments of transition. Cameron's work investigates the power of design to drive systems-level changes to achieve more sustainable and equitable futures. Designers are people who pay attention to the material quality of everyday existence uh, in ways that I think almost everybody else takes for granted. People only notice design when it goes wrong. They tend to notice it when there's a misfit or when there's a lapse or when there's something inconsistent. And so to some extent, only designers know how important it is for experiences to feel like somebody has taken responsibility for all aspects of them, from the overall arc right down to the detail of the pixel. So I think design at its best just calls attention to the importance of us recognising the quality of things, uh, attending to them, being a little more careful and and slow, engaging with things in, in a richer kind of way. Cameron is a designer, but he's also a philosopher. So questioning the way things are is central to the way he approaches research. So when an external partner comes to the Design Innovation Research Center, Cameron and his team employ what's called frame creation. It's a method set up by Case Dorst, a professor of design in the Faculty of Transdisciplinary Innovation at UTS. He's currently applying this method to help the United Nations implement their sustainability development goals. Frame creation is an innovation-centered approach. It applies design thinking to problem-solving. It focuses on the ability to co-design new approaches to the problem itself, as opposed to racing to a solution. This is how Cameron explains frame creation. He's speaking here with Cassandra Steeth. So frame creation draws attention to that problem reframing part of the co-evolution of problem and solution, which is the actual heart of designing. That expert designing is more about questioning the problem than it is about just uh, creatively coming up with solutions. Fascinating. So the idea is that you sort of walk around in the problem for some time before you even contemplate the solutions. And as you say, question the problem and really interrogate that. So when the Design and Innovation Research Centre is involved with a client, how long do you spend working and thinking through the problem? Uh, That's the absolute core of the way in which the Design Innovation Research Centre works. So We have very particular types of clients. A lot of them are government or government-related agencies or agencies that work with government departments and are working in contexts primarily of social justice, you could say, written large. And so they will come and bring us a problem they have. It's a pressing problem. They, They need a solution. But they work with us precisely because they agree to sit down and spend some time 
questioning whether they've got the right version of the problem or not. So if a client comes to us and is really convinced that they have the right version of the problem, then to some extent, we would just direct them to a design agency because that design agency can just start solutioning on what the client thinks is the problem. If they come to us, they're coming to a research center that's part of a university because they want to research the problem. They want to research whether they've got the right version of the problem and they want to collaborate with us in order to understand that problem more deeply. And they're prepared to actually suffer with us some criticism that perhaps the first version of the problem they've got is the wrong one and and maybe they were partly to blame for that. Maybe they've inherited a version of the problem that needs to be questioned. So they come to us precisely because they want to engage in workshops which are not about solutioning, but are precisely about better understanding what they're experiencing. So we definitely spend a lot of time, you know, 95% of the time perhaps in this problem framing area because we are a research centre rather than a design agency. Interesting. When I was thinking about this interview, Cameron, I was I was so perplexed as to how you spend so much time in the problem and such little time in the in the solution because I guess I was just reflecting on you know whether or not you get worried that you're spending too much time on the problem and that perhaps you know some anxieties might creep in and you think basically I better get going figuring out a solution here but it sounds as though the people that come to you particularly the government agencies it sounds as though are the bulk of your clientele in some ways they are coming to the design innovation research center because they actually want you guys to help question their problem that's effectively why they're knocking on your door. Is that right? That's absolutely the case. That kind of partners that we work with are people who have often tried existing ways of developing policy actions in response to the problem they've inherited or possibly even engaged a big four consultancy in doing some design thinking workshops in order to hopefully hack quickly to a solution to their problem and have then discovered that none of those solutions, which looked promising initially, actually deal with the structural nature of the problem they've got. So they find that their problem persists or morphs into another unintended consequence. They realise that they have not fully understood their own problem, even though it is their own field of expertise. So they do tend to come to us or the type of people who come to us do tend to have a vague sense of desperation or a vague sense of exasperation, often a kind of weariness that what has been available to them as innovation tools or implementation tools or solutioning creativity tools haven't adequately tackled what it is that they're trying to do. We work with partners who really trust that, you know, for the first 60, 70% of the project, it'll feel like nothing's happening because a lot of people are just talking and arguing and drawing diagrams and making models. And the only thing that's emerging is difference. But it's at the end of the acknowledgement of difference that people begin to see other ways of framing that just open up other ways of responding to their problems. Spending 95% of your time researching and understanding the problem and just 5% of your time on the solution is going to feel pretty uncomfortable, right? But it's important to realize that the unpredictability of TD requires giving it space and not over-constraining or controlling it. And space can mean a whole bunch of different things. 
space in the sense of allocating time, physical space, or digital platforms to air ideas. That also means letting interactions build in a way that doesn't force a prescribed path. These are sometimes called third spaces, and they can be designed to encourage new insights to emerge serendipitously. But you can't depend on serendipity alone. So collaborative facilitation or complex facilitation in that way is about taking people who have quite different worldviews on the same problem. So a lot of complex facilitation is about convincing people to come to a space. So often if you think about a problem, you imagine that everybody just has the same version of it. But if you think about it a bit longer, you can imagine that the way a social worker might think about criminality, the way in which a police person thinks about criminality, the way in which a household uh, who just happens to live in an area with high crime rates thinks about criminality. Though they're thinking about the same thing, they definitely do not think about them in the same way. The last will clearly have their frame viewed by issues of fear and probably feel quite atomized and individualized uh, in the way in which they approach that. A social worker will obviously uh, try to think about it very much in terms of systemic issues of inequality and the kind of responses that society allows to begin to deal with that, but again on a case-by-case basis. The police will obviously think about crisis moments in which it's necessary to, to get in the car and make an intervention. The last is to kind of make sure that they walk away from the workshop understanding that they do actually have a very distinct perspective on the problem and that it is not shared even by people who happen to be in the same subject area. So complex facilitation is not just about opening it up to participatory co-design. It's a complicated process. Uh, It definitely isn't just sort of co-design with post-it notes, a nice colourful, playful atmosphere in which everybody feels like they're having fun and therefore drop their guard. It really does recognise that people have frames and that those frames are inherited and structural, even embodied, so that they're held firmly and that it's hard to get people to begin to loosen and shift. I'm curious, is there anything UTS academics starting out their impact and engagement journey, perhaps more early year researchers can glean from complex facilitation? The first thing is just to recognise, as I said, that you're working in spaces of difference. You're not working in spaces of commonality. So I think there's a, a wishful thinking in a democracy that we all have something in common Uh, And if we can just drop our guard, we could get into that space. So I think telling or or showing and demonstrating early career researchers that collaboration is difficult and never becomes easy because those differences are structural and embodied, I think is is really important. Often a, a young academic will have the hubris of the power of everything they've learned, you know, by becoming a specialist in their area and will feel the power of the university as a kind of convener. Whereas I think because we do applied research in complex spaces, we're able to demonstrate quickly that this is still going to be hard work. What do you see as the real advantage of co-designing research? So I think I've pulled the word apart a little bit. The first thing I'd say is it's just amazing how quickly this word has been evacuated of any meaning whatsoever. Uh, You know, if I can risk being political, our federal government at the moment is fond of using the word uh, in ways that I think are are very evacuating of meaning. So I'd just break the word down and say, you know, there's the K 
towing quality and there's the design quality. How do you bring people into spaces in which they can collaborate, but it's not some magical new transdisciplinary space? It's a space in which they acknowledge their distinct worldviews, which are hard to break. So it's literally collaboration. It's a labor and it's a labor because people are speaking always from distinct positions and trying to find ways of understanding each other across that difference. The second is that I think the key quality to bring to research is that design side. So designers are obsessed with making a difference in the world. At the moment, the federal government's telling everybody to do uh, impact and focus on end-user engagement, etc. I mean, that is what designers do. Designers are only ever interested in making a difference, in making something that makes a different future possible. That's the purpose of design. So designers are always paying attention to these kind of material outputs, so much so that other disciplines rubbish them as being instrumental and productivist and, and too focused on outcomes. But in fact, I think it's a really important missing element in too much academic research. It's still possible to be critical and speculative and ask you know, basic questions uh, within frameworks that nevertheless still want to make a difference and where that verb make literally means make things that make a difference. So I think co-design makes a big difference to research when it's collaboration and when it's collaboration on making things that are going to make a difference. What do you think can go wrong with transdisciplinary research? I think two things tend to go wrong with transdisciplinary research. The first is the assumption that it is possible for people who've spent their lives getting their satisfiers and being very productive from disciplinary frameworks can quickly switch into so-called transdisciplinary engagements. I think it's much more necessary to recognise that no academic says that they study biology. They are a biologist. No person studies engineering. They are an engineer. And so when doing transdisciplinary work, you do transdisciplinary work as an engineer and you do transdisciplinary work as a biologist. So I think there is too often a sense that transdisciplinarity is accessible and that people can quickly learn to drop their inheritance of how they've been trained and the worldviews and habits and practices associated with their discipline and just start engaging in some other kind of space. So I think the first thing that goes wrong is just not recognising enough those differences. It does feel like sometimes designers are able to be sensitive to the kind of implicit bias where somebody who thinks they're being very liberal in their transdisciplinarity is being liberal from their worldview of their discipline. So I think that's the first thing that tends to go wrong. I think the second thing is that there's a, a sense that you can kind of leave the transdisciplinary, if it could be accessed, as amorphous or dynamic or pluralist, there I'm much more thinking that it is something that requires a whole new set of rigors and habits and practices. So a lot of transdisciplinarity, it's changing these days, but a lot of transdisciplinarity has not enough itself instituted its own way of 
of doing things. It hasn't created its own distinct practices. It's not quite the case at UTS where the Transdisciplinary Innovation Unit, you know, is trying to codify some of what uh, is happening in that space. I think a lot of the work that Case Dorst has been doing, taking a lot of designly ways of working and then codifying them as things like frame creation or different ways of negotiating complexity, complex facilitation. These are world leading because they've actually articulated transdisciplinarity as its own practice as a set of rigors and procedures that help keep people from disciplinary backgrounds in this new emergent space. So I think the second danger is just when it sort of becomes this open kind of VUCA, you know, volatile, dynamic space. I think those are dangerous characterizations. And I think the kind of challenges that transdisciplinarity tries to deal with are just so urgent and pressing that we don't have time to kind of just keep playing and experimenting in emergent ways in that space. We actually really need to constitute these as distinct ways of working. Transdisciplinary innovation is not easy. Those who engage with it need to challenge assumptions, including their own biases. They need to be open-minded and learn to collaborate in a neutral space, where researchers can meet as equals in order to co-create the innovation. And it takes time there won't always be a quick win with CD. You need to get to know each other, get to know each other's values, and it doesn't always pan out. So this can be tricky, especially under today's environment. There's a temptation to be quite tactical and continue working only within your discipline on problems where you're the expert. Instead, in TD, you're not always the expert, and solutions can take more time to emerge, and it can feel like you're wasting a lot of shots. But you're going to miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And society simply needs someone or a team to put your skates on, grab your stick, join a team, and score some goals against these wicked problems. This brings me back to the importance of teams. Some of you may have heard of Pasteur's Quadrant. If you haven't, head to our show notes page. If you imagine a 2 by 2 matrix of basic science versus applied science, the quadrants often refer to a scientist like Niels Bohr for purely basic science, Thomas Edison for purely applied science, and Louis Pasteur for the hybrid of basic and applied science together. TD research fits nicely with Pasteur's quadrant. Now, aside from noticing that the scientists are all men, this classification is illustrated and named after individuals. And that's the point. Operating in Pasteur's quadrant is often too much to ask for any one individual and better done as a diverse team. A supportive team can help you be comfortable with the uncomfortable and be confident in times of uncertainty. TD research can require what's known as a negative capability, which sounds bad, but really, that's the capability about being open and embracing the confusion to learn something new. And this level of comfort with uncertainty doesn't come naturally to people who have built their entire careers on being an expert. Aside from these personal challenges, there are some structural challenges at play here too. At the federal level, a major challenge to TD is how research is allocated and funded according to field of research codes that favor monodisciplinary approaches. Meanwhile, there are many committees, working parties, and conversations happening across all levels at UTS to figure out how to put FOR codes into the background and to focus on research that needs to get done. Many of us want to collaborate and for collaboration to be the new normal. There's another structural problem at the faculty level. Within any given faculty, promotion is usually tied to publishing in a very narrow list of journals specific to a discipline. This creates tough conversations among cross-disciplinary collaborators about which journals to target for publication. Thankfully, there are multidisciplinary journals out there, and there are ways out there to carve up the findings to target each discipline's top journals. 
Despite these issues, transdisciplinary collaboration is fun, it's rewarding, and it's essential to solve many of the problems we face. I hope this episode of Impact at UTS will help you think bigger and consider integrating multiple disciplines and practices on your next research project. If you want to find out more about TD and how to collaborate with us, head on over to tdi.uts.edu.au. Next time on Impact at UTS, we'll be looking at Indigenous-led knowledges and research. UTS has an incredible team of researchers and practitioners dedicated to improving the outcomes for First Nations people in Australia. Their work is as vital as it is impactful. Distinguished Professor and Director of Jambana, Larissa Barant, Senior Researcher Patty Gibson, and Barrister Craig Longman will share how self-determination is at the core of their research. We can tell by the research that the more Aboriginal people are centrally involved in those things, in the creation of programs, in the development of policy, in the delivery of services, that there, there are actually better results. So there is a kind of evidence-based reason why you would support a philosophy of self-determination. I'm Martin Blemel, and you've been listening to Impact at UTS. And don't forget, if you're at UTS and you're interested to learn more about research impact and engagement, head over to the UTS Res Hub website, reshub.uts.edu.au, where you'll find more information and helpful tools. At Impact Studios, we work with the best scholars to embed audio in the research process, making one-of-a-kind podcasts that entertain, inspire, and create change. To get in touch, you can email impactstudios at uts.edu.au. The production team live on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose lands were never ceded. 